space today. Uh, Chris, um, thank you for the love and care you have for people and creation and so many other things. Um, Steve Kenny, thank you for stepping in and helping and see this Chris and making this dream come true. And thank you to the panel that is here to have this important discussion today. Um, it is an honor to get to host this event here at this space. Um, this is the kind of stuff I love. I spent the morning watching people gardening, playing music, cooking food, uh, creating good community. Uh, that is just any pastor's dream as far as I'm concerned. On a Saturday afternoon, happy faces and good food and drink. And um, so thank you all. I just want to start us the first prayer in our um, prayers and thanksgiving in the Book of Common Prayer is for joy in God's creation. So I'm just going to read that prayer, and I'm going to turn this mic over to Chris to introduce the panel. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, who has filled the world with beauty, open our eyes to behold thy gracious hand in all thy works, that rejoicing in thy whole creation, we may learn to serve thee with gladness for the sake of him through whom all things were made, thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you all for being here. All right. Can you guys hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. All right, so glad everybody's here. We want to like open this up to a pretty invigorated conversation, try to pretend like we're comfortable. It's Saturday. Let's talk to each other. This event was inspired by Reverend Dr. Dan DeLeon here. And... Um, a quick story on that is actually in this program, but we did, um, we, we have a project called allcreation.org that produces content every quarter that's for people of faith and spiritual practice to connect them to biodiversity, to help them make that connection through the sacred texts and through the contemporary conversations about the sacred texts. We're doing this because I grew up in First Baptist Church with a really great um, sort of right practice, the Southern Baptist family, believe it or not. And uh, then I went back to that church as an adult, said, hey, we should work on environmental stuff. And they said, what are you talking about? We don't do that here. And I was like, wait, I grew up here. This is what we do. What do you, you know, so I've been working on this divide between secular, sacred, bioregenerative, self-defined for 25 years at least. And um, through this issue of all creation that Dan edited, I think we landed on the sort of the answer that I was looking for. And what was missing when I went back to First Baptist in 2006 to say, hey, let's focus on some environmental solutions. This is a really exciting way to grow as a community. And um, again, the people didn't really know how to relate to it. It didn't make sense. There wasn't any context. So Dan, I'll let talk a little more about what he kind of uncovered about Genesis 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. Um, but in short, the idea is that we sort of have made the context fit our times and of course, the text was not written in our times. So we've changed the context, and we've changed the meaning of this idea of dominion being about domination. And what Dan's work, and, and then across the, the panel of people who participated in that issue, what that uncovered is that this is a very unrealistic interpretation for a couple of good reasons I'll let Dan talk about. And then we had a, an issue of all creation in the summer that was about connections. And we came to sort of a new sociological culmination around this idea of kinship. And so in Christian language, people talk about the kingdom of God, which means you know a pyramid or a hierarchy or a, a triangle of 
domination and so forth. But the kingdom of God, the kinship of all of us, is a new way, perhaps, or the old way, the original way, of thinking of our identities, what we are, who we are, how we relate to each other, how we care for each other, how we celebrate our differences, rather than this time where we're so amazed that we're not the same people, you know. One uh, interesting factoid about what we are, where we are, is that every one of us is 50% of our DNA is the same as the plant, right? We literally emerged into a world of biodiversity. And all of the sacred texts talk about this idea that we're, we come into a world that's already got life in it, yet the way we live is as if that life doesn't matter. And my nonprofit that's called Biointegrity, which produces all creation, has done a bunch of research to show through the, the academic research that this idea of care as a strategy to address climate change, species extinction crisis, food crisis, poverty, drought, freshwater shortages, uh, air circulation, moisture circulation. This is the only way to regain those things is to restore the wilderness systems of our planet, the other life of our planet, the habitats and the ecosystems. So this is what I'm passionate about. I've been trying to get this to consciousness to spread out and these two things of identity and right action it makes sense according to the power of regenerative reality that we are made of and we are inside of that exists only on this planet. With all that in mind, I want to introduce the panelists who are talking today about how we are called to care for other life in Genesis 1, 26, each other and ourselves. So from the Christian perspective, we have in Genesis 1, 26, God saying, uh, let them have dominion, meaning the human beings, and he lists all of the life on earth, everything that creeps, crawls, flies, and swims, right? And then Jesus says in the New Testament, love thy neighbor as thyself. You are holy, and so am I. We are sacred, right? We are holy to each other. I think that we're not living this way as a society. And by taking care seriously, by moving through people's traumas, people's depravities, by taking on these challenges of the divisions, the polarizations, through care, which is what each of these people has committed their lives to. We can all you know, really think of this as our best asset, I think, for transformation. We know we need breakthroughs. We know we need new culture. We need new values. And so I have come to this conclusion that care is the best way to root that, whether you're sacred, secular, self-defined, in the way you have your worldview. And so we're going to hear from each of these people about care from their perspective. And uh, I'll, I'll end with Steve. So here's the panel introductions. Over here is Reverend Dr. Dan DeLeon, I mentioned a second ago. He's a senior pastor at Friends UCC in Bryan College Station. Here's his daughter Ruthie. They're going to perform outside about 4.30 um, with Ruben, the preacher dad. And I grew up with Dan. Um, Dan is, I think, the most committed social justice uh, advocate I know of. And uh, that's, I'm saying that with Aaron Walter over here. Because this guy shows up and doesn't have to. Um, next to him is the Venerable JG, thank you. Um, I just met her officially on Tuesday night, um, and she's one of the sweetest, most genuinely kind people I've ever met. She's part of the, or she's the, the director at the Fo Guang Zhang Yun Temple. Is that for you? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's the, uh, if you go 360, you see the beautiful uh, construction out there, the beautiful temple out there, that's her place. And uh, her congregation, that congregation is so much like a family, more than any congregation I've been in a long time. They really love each other, they really spend time together. Uh, next to her is Reverend Jimmy Calhoun, who's also uh, a famous musician at, a, at an earlier time in his life, and still a legendary musician to people like me that are dyed and musicians. He's an incredible bass player in his earlier life, and then about in the 90s, he became a pastor. He's written several books about his uh, musical career and how these things interact. That he, but we had lunch on Wednesday, and it's just integrity. You know, everything is integrity. There's, there's, Jimmy is going to give it you all real, and just like the bass playing, you know, it's either moving or it's not. So, Jimmy Calhoun, it's a real honor to have him here today. Um, next to him is Kaya Hartwood, Pastor Kaya Hartwood. Um, Kaya is from... You church of Brazos Valley. Brazos Valley, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, Pastor at Union Church of Brazos Valley, which is in Bryan College Station area. Um, she's a great artist. I know her through her music first, and then she's also a pastor. And um, I don't know much about Kaya as a pastor yet, but in the All Creation issue that's here, she's featured. Uh, and then her music is also featured. Next to Kaya is Imam Islam Mossad. Imam is his title, like Reverend or, or Venerable. Islam is his first name, and also the religion. <laughs> so Islam, uh, I think he grew up here in Austin. Yes. His uh, Egyptian parents but grew up here, uh, went to UT, got an engineering degree, and then memorized the Quran. And that he said it's easy to do. This, this gentleman, I think, is, is the most committed uh, practitioner of faith I, I know of. And, and it is kind of how Muslims roll, as it were. They really, really go day after day after day for their faith and their beliefs and this, this idea of care and, and being in relationship, which I think is the, the nexus of what care is about. It's not ideas. This is like feminine wisdom. This is listening, listening, listening here. But Imam al-Sad, it's really great to have him here. We're going to start with him, actually, for the first question. Next to uh, Islam is Brad, Reverend Brad Lyon. Uh, I met Brad about six weeks ago, and he blew me away. He's just got a, a depth and a freshness to the whole creation care kind of conversation. And then it's clear from the way he conducts himself that he's, you know, he's a people person. He's, he's he, the whole thing. So I'm really, really glad that Brad is here all the way to South Austin. He's senior pastor at Abiding Love Lutheran Church. I should mention also, um, Islam Mossad is the imam at the North Boston Muslim Community Center. And then next to Brad is Reverend Aaron Walter. And Aaron is also a social justice crusader. She's the executive director of the Texas UU Justice Coalition. And she is a community minister at Wildflower Church in South Central Austin. And um, she's a punk rocker also, so she plays at uh, 4 o'clock as soon as this is over. She's going to go sing and scream about love. <laughs> and um, in a normal panel setting, we would have like two of these people, right? Because they have so much to give. But because we were hoping to really interact at a very, in a very diverse way, again, celebrate our differences. And diversity is reality, right? We emerged into a diverse world. There's not any couple in this place that agrees on everything ever, all the time. We all change our ideas and our bodies, are, everything's changing, everything is diversity through our whole lives. So 
I think we can rest assured that diversity is reality and we should embrace it and celebrate it. And that means differences are good. You know, we're not supposed to agree. We're supposed to be different. <coughs> With all that said, I'm going to introduce Reverend Dr. Stephen Kenny. Dr. Kenny is uh, just a great guy. And uh, he's I think you're the only one who calls me doctor. <laughs> <laughs> See what I mean? He's been a mentor to a bunch of us, actually, and a, and a great example. And that's one of the reasons we want him to sort of run the panel. He had a project called the Front Porch Project for about 10 years. That was really kind of what this is about, what this event is about. We, we model a lot of things off of what Steve did. He, he was trying to create dialogue between the secular, sacred worlds his whole career, I think. And uh, so he was, uh, for about 10 years, getting together at Schultz's Beer Garden and then doing like a, a Eucharist and a conversation and a benediction and beer and, you know, like full identity. Who are you? Come on and be you. And interviewing an incredibly diverse population of people, from the chief of police to uh, famous authors and all kinds of things. But um, he's going to run the panel. He's also recently retired from All Saints Episcopal and um, recently retired as the board president of Interfaith Action of Central Texas. So what we have is a darn tuned, very esteemed panel, but I'm like an informal musician-y type person, so we're, we're going to try to work with both here. You probably get some really cogent, um, crisp, and deep ideas, but we also want to be loose and, and just energized and, and be yourself, be honest, and be vulnerable, be angry, whatever, but share when the time comes. We're going to do this for about half an hour, and then we'll open up to the community conversation with the town hall and this microphone in the middle. And I think that's all I have to say. So thank you again for being here. Thank you, Billy, for hosting us in the Physical Church of the Resurrection. And here is Dr. Kenny. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, you know, I think we all are, are hyper-aware. We're almost even, as they call it, triggered by the trauma of our current cultural and political and environmental consternation. There's a lot of pessimism. There's a lot of uh, depression. It's, it's not a happy time. And I like to think, because of my own faith and the people that I believe in, that this time is actually a birth pain time. It's a transitional time. And it can go in a number of directions. But I think events like this, admittedly, were a bunch of mustard seeds that have been thrown around. And, uh, or as Tim Platt put it, we, at this, at the gift, we throw lots of spaghetti on the wall and see, see what sticks. But it's growing. This little mustard seed is starting to uh, flourish with a new way of thinking about this pessimistic time. And I like to think of Chris Searles as the midwife uh, of this new birthing, at least in this time and space, right? In these three acres, I've seen Chris work tirelessly to pull people together, to promote the event, to build relationships. And, and our hope is that being called to care will somehow inspire more and more neighborhoods, block at a time, person at a time, to care more. And at the end of the day, at, at, at the heart of my sacred tradition is this idea of uh, the Greek uh, word is dikaiosune. It's, it's justice. But really, that, that's, the, that's the word, that's the abstraction for right relationship. How do we restore 
right relationship and, and, and create justice through our partnering, through our kinship, through our dialogue. So my hope for, for today is along those themes um, that each of our panelists, and we'll, we'll, we'll start with Imam Islam, uh, giving them a chance to just respond to the question, what does it look like to care in your community, in your, in your uh, faith perspective, if you will, or anything else that you think relates to the theme, because we're trying to get our neurons bouncing around uh, so that we can really have a good regenerative, Chris's favorite word, conversation between us. And hopefully something new will, will arise. Uh, so each panelist will have, you know, uh, anywhere from 15 seconds to three minutes. Because <laughs> if you do the math, it really adds up. And, uh, and just, just put something on our plate for our digestion. And, and then we'll have a little back and forth on the panel. And then we'll open it up. Sound good? Okay. All right. This is Imam Islam Mossad talking about care for nature and other life. Uh, thank you, uh, Reverend Kinney. Uh, so uh, thank you all for, for coming uh, on this uh, Saturday where you could be doing a million and one other things. Uh, but uh, I start first of all, uh, we say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which means that in the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful, uh, so as both of you were speaking, uh, Chris and Reverend Kinney, that something that came to my mind was that the chapter of the Qur'an which is called The Sun. So the sun is very important, uh, not just symbolically, but clearly for life itself. Uh, and so in that surah, which is the, in English we say that chapter of the Qur'an, uh, if, if you allow me maybe a few more seconds, <laughs> I can let you hear what it sounds like because I'm not a musician, so I'm not going to be playing any music. But uh, the closest thing, the Quran is not music, but it has a musicality to it. So, so I'll let you hear what the Quran sounds like, um, and then I'll give a very brief explanation. Uh, even though it might be volumes, I'll make it as brief as possible here. Uh, in, in due respect to all the panelists. So, the chapter of the Quran, I'll go ahead and recite it. Uh, again, it's about the sun, the moon, the, the rivers, the nature around us, but then very quickly goes into the soul of man. So right after about nature, it talks about the soul of man, because nature is inside of us as well. Um, so, and the rectification of the soul of man. Um, and then, so I'm giving the explanation before the recitation. So I will end with the recitation. Let's do it that way. So the, the end is very interesting because it gives a particular example of an Arab prophet whose name was Saleh and his people called the Thamud. And the sign of that prophet was a miraculous she-camel which God sent to them as a sign that he was a true prophet. And he warned them, he said, do not uh, touch this camel. So again, uh, nature, in this case an animal that is been deemed sacred, that is not to be touched, he warned them about this. And they would have a day where they would drink from the wells, and then the next day they would allow the camel to drink from the wells, equally sharing the resource. But his people denied him, 
and hamstrung the camel, and then they got the punishment of God on them. Don't worry, the next chapter, which we're not going to talk about, has a good ending. Uh, but whether, how do you define good or bad? I mean, they, they hamstrung the sea camel of God, uh, which, which they were warned not to do. So that's the predicament. So I'll let you hear what it sounds like, um, just for, for a little bit of flavor here. <clears throat> والشمس وضحاها والقمر إذا تلاها والنهار إذا جلاها والليل إذا يغشاها والسماء وما بناها والأرض وما طحاها ونفس وما سواها فألهمها فجورها وتقواها قد أفلح من زكاها وقد خاب من دساها كذبت ثمود بتقواها إذ بعث أشقاها فقال فكذبوه فعقروها فدمدم عليهم ربهم بذنبهم فسواها ولا يخاف عقباها. صدق الله العظيم. So that is the chapter in the whole book called this Does anybody um, uh, have a thought to anything that uh, Imam Islam uh, presented or, or do you feel inspired to go next? Anybody? Up next is the Venerable J.G. sharing her thoughts on dominionism and being the center of the universe. Venerable J.G., and I'm hoping that you will, uh, not in competition with Imam Islam, but maybe um, uh, more flavor with a, a, a Mandarin chant. <laughs> Before, before I tell you what I think, when I step on the platform, 
and I see two vacant seats on the platform. And I'm thinking of, shall I sit in the center? Shall I sit at the end of the line? And I don't want to be the center <laughs> of this panel. And then I don't want to be the first if Stephen asked me to talk. You're the perfect spot. <laughs> And then when I come to this question, how can you be a panelist and not be the center of the universe? <laughs> so wherever I sit, I will be the center of the universe. And so I think to myself, what would be a Buddhist language to say to be the center of the universe? It's, a, it's not common in Buddhist language. We will say that uh, uh, this, instead of saying the center of the universe, it should be the master, okay? the master of something. So to be a master of a congregation, to be a master of yourself as an individual. So let me tell you a story in uh, Buddha's time that in a congregation, then the disciple of the Buddha asked the Buddha a question, what is the difference between an ordinary person and a sage, a holy person? Okay, since we are talking about secular and uh, the, uh, the uh, how, what is the opposite of secular? The sacred. The sacred, okay, thank you. <laughs> and so what is the difference between these two? So, uh, you know, the, uh, the reason why Buddha spent time, live his household life to practice, is to solve the problem of human suffering. Okay? And then so, he starts from the key word, suffering. He says that for an ordinary person, if you physically, if in your physical body, you suffer, and that would affect your mind. So your mind would have depressed, you will have worry about your physical conditions. Well, if you are a sacred person, a sage, a well spiritually cultivated person, then even though physically you have pain, but mentally you don't have that. Do you like that? Yeah, if you like that, then come to the church, not to the temple, cultivate. Okay, that makes the difference between an ordinary person and a holy person. So, he says that, the Buddha says that, so for you guys, as a, my disciple, then I will tell you, you have to work hard. And that work hard in Buddhist language is right effort. Okay? And when you work hard, you cannot be sidetracked by beautiful women, okay? by handsome gentlemen, okay? by delicious food. Okay? You have to be mindful. So we call it right mindfulness. So with right efforts and right mindfulness, then you will walk on the right paths okay? that you cultivate and you can get rid of suffering. So, if you do that, then you can be the master of yourself. 
So this is how I tell my congregation that if you want to help others, if you want to make this world a beautiful world to live in, then you have to know how to take care of yourself, be master of yourself. And with that, what we call the cultivation, the, the virtues that we cultivate, for example, patience, tolerance, compassion, <coughs> that can help you in taking care of others. And in taking care of others, that even though that physically you may see pain that occurred everywhere, okay, as human being, we suffer, okay. But when you know how to cultivate yourself, then your mind, okay, it will not affect your mind, so that you can continue continuously have that strength to help others. Okay? Otherwise, you'll be overwhelmed by the suffering of the world. That's my share. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next, Reverend Aaron Walter shares Unitarian Universalist principles on care and dominionism. I'm the Reverend Aaron Walter, and thank you for having us, and thank you for being here. And when we when we started planning this, um, my job was a little different. So I'm in a new role as your neighbor. We're not too far away. I'm also on the interim ministry team at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, which is in 47th and Grover. So in the spirit of neighborliness, I just bring greetings from that congregation today as well. Um, Unitarian Universalism is a non-creedal faith, so I'm extremely blessed to be one of two on this panel today, so I don't have to pretend to speak for the beliefs of all you lose, because you'll have two different examples today. What we have are principles and sources, and among our foundational principles are the inherent worth and dignity of every person, so you don't have to earn that worthiness is a key for us. We are known as really active people. Um, and so I wore my yellow uh, side of love stole today because you may recognize us if you go to the Capitol, we're often in these sort of gold yellow t-shirts that say side of love. But those actions that we're taking in our faith are not what make us worthy. We're doing it out of care for everyone, um, but, but we come from a place of inherent worthiness in our faith. And then another pillar is the interdependent web of all life. So I was a little embarrassed when Dan and I had the conversation at my house in Bastrop about dominionism because I said, I don't know if I've ever said that word out loud before. <laughs> it's not a part of, I grew up Unitarian Universalist, it's not a part of my faith language. So it was a new thing for me to wrestle with it. And, and, and to be honest, it's a new thing for me to wrestle with it with all of you. So thank you for the invitation. Um, but what I would say is while we don't talk about it that way, as a denomination that strives to be multicultural and anti-racist, um, we are also a white culture dominant denomination. And so whether we say we believe in dominance, our actions often show that we believe that about ourselves. Our actions 
And so we're working on what right action means for us in this world. Um, and so I would say when I think about the call to care, I think about what it means to be accountable to others and whom do I belong to. And so Dan is one of those people I belong to and Kaya is one of those people I belong to and Meg out here is someone I belong to and I think about how my actions um, relate to those people that I belong to. And, and in the bigger scheme of things, I believe that we all belong to each other and that interdependence and that goes for the earth. So um, I'm just looking forward to hearing from the rest of you and learning from you today. Listening is another piece of the way that we are committed to caring because one of our sources is lived experience. So each of you carries with you truth, we believe. We say that divine spark is in all of you. So I'm looking forward to having even more sense of the divine by listening to all of your lived experiences today. Thank you. Next is Reverend Brad Hyam on caring actions for one another and other life. There's so much, and it seems to be in too many communities so little attended to. A lot of what I've heard so far breaks down on this seeming dichotomy between orthodoxy and orthopraxis. There's right effort or orthopraxis that doesn't seem to get enough attention. And orthodoxy, right belief, we are all about that. And we as a Lutheran confessional tradition, creedal tradition, are exhausted in our writings and our pronouncements. And here on the eve of the uh, celebration of the Reformation and all of that business, it almost seems a little heretical to talk about the book of James, but um, Luther had decided problems with that book because it seemed to contravene this idea that grace is the way by which God makes us right with God, which is entirely harmonic with James. There also is the idea that something comes out of that righteousness, that right belief, and it is right practice, it's right effort. Um, James says that faith without works is dead. Tell me about your faith and I'll show you my faith by what I do. So there's a kinetic expressed element that comes into play there. And we hear this in, in Jesus' teaching. I was trying to think about a particular part of Judeo-Christian book that could address this well. And it's Jesus' teaching about the sheep and the goats. Remember this in Matthew 25. There's this remarkable place where he teaches about the separation of those that seem to be pleasing to God and those that do not please God. And many traditions have attached to this as a way of deciding who gets in and who doesn't. There's always this sort of punching my ticket, making sure that there's a way for me to get my sorry self to paradise. And it seems to be absolutely contrary to what he's talking about. This is the place where he says, when you saw me hungry, you fed me. When you saw me naked, you clothed me. And the disciple, he goes through many of these. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you ministered to me. And the disciples look at him and say, when did we see you sick or naked or hungry? And Jesus says that every time you saw one of the least of these, my neighbors, you saw me. Every time you ministered to one of them, you ministered to me. And then he does the converse as well. And the ones that are, are um, 
have pleased God by being altruistic and caring are the sheep, and they go in, they enter into the joy of the master. And then the ones that fail to recognize or fail to respond to the needs also fail to recognize or respond to the one who is there to be cared for. And they are the goats, and they go into what's called the scotus externus, the outer darkness, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And of course, we get in with our heaven and hell theology, we get a hold of that and we start thinking, well, sheep are going to heaven and the goats are going to hell, right? And yet we have to couple that with Jesus' teaching that all of this takes place in a present reality. These are not some futuristic, ideal, or deadly places that are being talked about there. They're places where we are in the midst of life. When we find ourselves part of that divine economy, that divine flow, of goodness and grace, and it reaches out and it ministers to and cares for and meets the needs, especially to the least and the lost. We are participating in paradise on earth, heaven on earth. When we talk about the ways in which, I must confess, I've walked past, I've missed so many opportunities to be a caring, compassionate person in my own life. We live in a place of darkness, not in the hereafter, and not forever, thank God, but now. So we begin to, and, and all of this time, Jesus is talking about the fact that when you miss the neighbor or you serve the neighbor, it is me that you're missing or me that you're serving. And this touches ground, I think, in an even deeper way. We are part and parcel of one and the same creation, this dominionistic idea um, that has in some ways been supported positively, in other ways seems to be almost kind of a Christian takeover methodology. Um, we are of one substance with all of creation. We are a center, an expression, an utterance of the divine. And all of us are, and all of our neighbors on earth are, and not just our bipedals, but our foreleggers and our winged and finned and all of the material substance of creation are utterances of the one and same divine. And the light of that divine rests at the deepest level of ourselves, at the deepest level of all creation, and it just wants to shine for you. So when we minister to one another, when we care for one another, we are caring for that divine essence in the other, and proclaiming our unity, and proclaiming the the complete interconnectedness of all life and all being. And uh, my prayer is that the church can prize that orthopraxis over the orthodoxies that seem to have us grabbing one another by the hair more often. Thanks, man. Next is Reverend Jimmy Calhoun. Well, I'd like to uh, share something, share a couple of thoughts, and one of which is some lyrics from a song that I recorded on my third album, and it said, basically, caring is sharing, and when you do that, there's no comparing. And I'd, I'd like to speak anecdotally to that, and give you two, two ways of which people thought they were caring and when they went off 
us a little bit. And one of which is a story. Jelaine and I, my wife, we belong to a community called the Iona Community in Scotland. And uh, the premise there is, uh, in work and worship, God is with you. So very much along the lines of what uh, my brother just shared, uh, it's about doing things. It's not about a, a lot of abstraction. So one of the fellows in the community, a couple went down to Ghana, and they were, they were from Scotland, which at the time was the eighth richest country on the planet. The woman went down there, they were missionaries, they were gonna spend you know, a considerable amount of time there. She was pregnant when they left Scotland. When they got to Ghana, she was ready to give birth. Well, the Ghanaian custom is when somebody has a new mouth to feed, the community chips in to, uh, to give financially to take the load off the family that had the kid. You, you see what I'm saying? So these people who had very little gave what they had to a couple who had infinitely more than them in, the, in terms of finances to tell them that you're part of our community and because you are a part of our community we're going to treat you as though you are. That's very important. To be, to be made to feel welcome. I've lived in the United States a considerable amount of time. And for the majority of that time, I've not always felt welcome every place I've gone. Think about that. Radical welcome is a very difficult thing to do. In the evangelical circles where I am ordained, we have this this idea we we like to trumpet what it is we believe we're doing even when our actions don't match what it is we say on Sunday morning. And a good example of that is in the way races relate to each other. Just last week another story that is the complete opposite of the one I just told. Whereas there is a large church in Virginia that we're aware of. There's, it's predominantly white. There's a smattering of black people in the church. They decided they wanted to do something about racial reconciliation. And there was a white person that was spearheading it. So they got several books by black authors to give to the congregation to get them to read about what it meant to be black in America. They take him to the white pastor and he goes, oh, he found something wrong with every single book. Then he actually went on Amazon.com and found one by a white expert on racial reconciliation and said, that's the one we're reading. He cared, but he shared very little. 
with the people he needed to be listening to. So if, if I would say anything, if, uh, caring, it starts with listening when it, when it comes to interrelating to uh, with people. Learn to listen and listen to learn. And that's about all of my poetry. That was awesome. <laughs> Next is Pastor Kaya Hartwood. It's hard to be in the middle. <laughs> um, well, the thing that I think would add to this conversation, perhaps, is what we have in common being all living in this culture. And uh, one of the aspects of that that really uh, stands out as a Unitarian Universalist is our first principle, as, as Aaron said, is that inherent worth of people dignity of all people, but I want to expand that because we are all related. That's a Lakota uh, statement, but we are all related, and I'm not just talking about the people with two legs or two arms. No matter what color you are, there are other species, and everything is connected in the web of existence. We're all related, but a lot of Americans, regardless of how you were raised, have settlers' minds. And what I'm suggesting that we might consider is that science is not always right. And science leaves out a lot of things. We need a spiritual science. We need a combination. For example, the way the earth works, nobody knows. They try to build a biosphere, doesn't work. Nobody is so advanced that they understand that why everything in the whole of existence is connected. Just think about that for a second. So what I'm suggesting is we get a native instead of a settler mind or a native mind, and I, I don't mean indigenous mind, although that's connected. I'm saying we need to be native to this place and assume perhaps that we don't know everything. And just by adopting a more humble position, we might be able to learn something and do better instead of having to do it in a scientific way, which is you have a hypothesis, i.e. that we run the world, for example. And then you have to prove it's not true to undo the damage that was done and then come up with a new hypothesis that might be closer to the truth. So what I'm suggesting is that we get a more native mind and go, hmm, I don't know enough about this yet. I need to watch and not necessarily interact with something I don't know what, what the, the outcome of my actions are going to be. Does that make sense, or am I talking to you here? <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is, what if we just sat for a minute and didn't act? Because we don't know. And pay attention and see what is working, and pay attention to the people who have been more concerned with the earth for longer, more respectful of the earth, and maybe listen to what they're saying. I think that's our best chance in the, in the dangerous times that we live in. That's all I have to say. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. In this final segment of our panelist comments, Reverend Kenny asks Reverend Dan DeLeon to bring it all together.
Before Dan uh, closes the panel uh, discussion, Dan, I, uh, I've just been on the website with the, uh, the interviews that you did for the, the Dominion topic. And um, so much of what I've heard here uh, talks about our identity. You know, what mastering ourselves, subduing ourselves, I think is how uh, in your interview with uh, Wiersbe, he talked about subduing ourselves. So anything that, I, I want you to tie up any loose ends or, or uh, uh, as the editor of, of this subject, if you could just stir, uh, stir us up in a way that we can engage in a panel discussion. So just take your time and lay it out. Okay. I can try to do that. Thanks. So getting back to the initial prompt and trying to move us forward of, from your, what does care mean from a faith perspective and what does it mean care for your community? Uh, so I am a pastor in the United Church of Christ, Baptist Rear. I live at Bryan College Station, which is an entirely different culture from where we're sitting right now. Um, and I'm thankful for all of that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says. Um, and the response to him is, and who is my neighbor? And then he tells a story, which whether we are familiar with a spiritual realm or a secular realm, we all know some variation of this story. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where when a guy is walking down a dangerous road, he's beaten and robbed and left for dead. A priest walks by, sees him, and does nothing. A Levite walks by and sees him, does nothing. The ones who stereotypically should help. And then a Samaritan who is despised in his time and context, despised by the hearers of the story, stops. Jesus is intentional about being a Samaritan and helps this person. He goes above and beyond and helps this person. Puts them up in a, a motel, in an inn, gives more money than he needs to give to be able to care for this person. Says, I'll be back to check on him. Tying up the story, Jesus says, who was more of a neighbor in the story? And the person who asked, and who is my neighbor, says, the guy who stopped the Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Flipping the question on its head, where we ask, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, all you gotta do is you gotta be a neighbor. Being a neighbor, you have, to, you have to care. And in being a neighbor, we have to acknowledge what has been said before, the interrelatedness of everything. Because in doing that, you, you can't really ask who is my neighbor. But even if you want to ask who is my neighbor, pick and choose who it is, even from a selfish perspective, we have to care for the earth and the creatures with whom we are interrelated to be able to survive. You do that, you're helping everyone, the ones that you're picking and choosing, who is my neighbor. So you can't even ask. All you can do is be a neighbor. And to be a neighbor, we have to be just as selfless as we are naturally, oftentimes, selfish. So this kind of speaks to the topic of dominionism, which we'll get to in just one second. But in terms of caring for our community, I just wanted to share a quick example and story that kind of ties back to my friend, Imam Islam Asad here, who was also an imam in our community, in College Station for a while. 
One night a few years ago, someone who was not focused on being a neighbor took a gun and took a few shots um, at the Islamic community of BCS Mosque, damaging the entrance, intimidating the people who would go in there to pray. And when the news broke about that, um, I spoke with a, a mutual friend of ours, a rabbi in town, and said, what do we do? My rabbi friend was out of town, but suggested it's Friday, our friends are having prayer. We need to go and be in solidarity with our friends who are having prayer. And so we put the word out, we're going to form a human chain around the mosque to send a message to anyone who would hurt our neighbors that this isn't how you treat your neighborhood. And you know who showed up? It wasn't like-minded people, like Chris was saying before. It was a wide swath of people from the community, civic leaders who I know disagree with each other on all kinds of matters, people from different religions and lack thereof. Um, and we had a great time. It was hot, so hot in the summer. And we shared water with each other, made sure it was okay. The police showed up and helped out. But the message was that in spite of it being a stereotypically conservative place, which would stereotypically be opposed to Muslims gathering to pray out of deep-seated Islamophobia, in spite of that, the message was that we all understood you don't mess with the neighborhood. If you shoot at this mosque, you are shooting at our neighbors, and you don't do that. You just got to be a neighbor. So when it comes to looking at dominionism, back to the, what Chris was sharing before about the uh, topic that we're all addressing here, um, I just want to speak really briefly so that we can kind of get to the conversation, right? You said this about context. And of course we have wrecked that context. We have taken and we will make humankind, and let us make humankind in our likeness, and they will subdue the earth, fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the cattle and livestock and every creeping crawling thing on the earth. And along comes the Industrial Revolution. And you know what the what Bible verse was preached more than any other throughout the Industrial Revolution in Christian churches? Genesis 1.26. Not to be able to be transformed and changed by what it means, but to be able to justify what was going on and extracting anything and everything from the earth. So Sub subduing was understood in terms of subjugating. Dominion was understood in terms of dominating rather than coming alongside. So getting back to the context of interrelatedness and coming alongside, I think that's how it is that we can express um, how we care. What does it mean to come alongside versus dominate and subjugate? That's brilliant. Thanks so much. Uh, before we open it up, uh, uh, the idea is that if you have a question for a specific panelist, just let us know, or in general a question, if you have a statement, uh, your own thought that's been triggered by anything that's said, now's the time to just come up and share that uh, with the whole group, and then we'll just respond as, as needed. Okay, anybody want to say anything? Brad? Yes, sir. I'd just like to say, I feel like 
you're all talking about to some degree values that I am very enthusiastic on, but they're perhaps countercultural values. So my question, my worry is how do we how do we bring those values against the culture who, who has such powerful mechanisms for promulgating its own values or reproducing and preaching its own values to the people? Yeah. Good question. Great question. Anybody got a response to that? I'll just start by saying a little bit at a time. Every conversation at a time. Um, a lot of times I think we hear in the church people wanting the church to be, I'll hear, you know, we, we want the church to be known for our justice work, or we want or we want the church to grow. And I'll say, well, who have you talked to lately? Um, you know, who are you having in your home for dinner? Who are you inviting to your rock and roll show? Um, so so the, the spirit of it all is, is one conversation at a time. Before this, I have my I voted sticker. Before this, I was in a, um, a get out the boat phone and text bank with the Poor People's Campaign. If you're not familiar with the Poor People's Campaign, I, I highly recommend looking them up. And they have an incredible Bible if you're, so I didn't grow up with a lot of Bible. And as I've been wanting to have more Bible literacy, um, I picked up the um, Poverty and Justice Bible that is used in the Poor People's Campaign, and they highlight sections that have to do with poverty and justice. So I, I commend that to you. But at any rate, um, opening up who we know and who we talk to and, and taking those little actions. So our 40 people on a Zoom texting voters to get out the vote in a nonpartisan way going to change everything? No and yes. You know, every little faith action that we do, every conversation, and with our own people. We often want it to be that it's like someone else, but with our own families, our own people. That's my first thought. Uh, and Brad, I'll add to that where, like my son who's 23 years old, for him it's dire that he's very depressed about the powers that be and the hopelessness of what his generation is facing. And the word apocalypse comes to mind, right? The apocalypse is the Greek word for to reveal. And when all, when everything falls down, what's left? And that's why what I said in the beginning, this is a dire time for a lot of people. And, and I think uh, politically and culturally, the, the consternation is so powerful that the greatest temptation is to be hopeless, right? But uh, my, my hope is that this apocalyptic time where systems are failing, where water is, is not being, is drying up. Uh, I think of Cape Town in 2015 when they went through their three-year drought. Rich and poor had decided there's no water. So they literally had to come up with a community plan that, that was kind of a birth pain period that gave birth to, I think, a more caring. It may have moved the needle just a little bit, but just enough in Cape Town where they became more aware of how interdependent we are and how we really do have to care, or else, you know, we're all, you know, doomed. But we're not. Okay, uh, thank you. Any other thoughts to that or any other questions? I'm here today because I am your neighbor. Yeah, in my neighborhood, I saw a flyer at Torchy's Taco 
I went on the internet, I looked at it, and I said, okay, I want to go hear what they're talking about. And I do think these are apocalyptic times, but as the, my mom said, I don't personally label it as good or bad. If it is the end, well, at least I'm getting to see it and live it, and I'm alive for it. If it's the end, if it's good or bad, that's not for me to judge. But what, like, um, the Buddhist sister spoke about, my um, purpose is to be here now, is to be present with the people I'm around right now, right here. But what, I, what, I, what came to my mind when you were talking is, for the past 30 years, I haven't owned an automobile. And I think automobiles are gonna destroy the earth. I think it's, it's it was 100, over 110 last summer, and I was out on my bicycle, and that really, really sucked. But there, all these cars were out there, and people were still in them. And um, maybe somebody else came on their bicycle today, I don't know. But I saw mine was the only one. And what you said, um, I forget the exact words, but something about the Christian, um, hierarchical takedown, something, those weren't your words, but it was kind of what you're talking about, the um, white male supremacy that has brought us to this position we're in today, and we're all living it. But here's what I really wanted to say. When I'm on my bicycle, or when I'm a pedestrian, I always have the attitude, I'm going to give the people in cars the chance to be courteous. That's my gift to them, is that they can choose to be courteous. They can choose to stop at the stop sign and not terrorize me as I'm trying to walk across the street. And when um, cars are courteous, and so much of the time they are, people are so courteous out there. And when they are, I'll look at them, I'll look at them and I'll go like that. I'll give them the love back. I'll give them a blessing. And so I really feel like I am a part of my community because I'm interacting with it. When I'm on my bike or I'm walking and I see someone walking or I live near the School for the Blind and sometimes they'll be in the state property just walking in a circle because they can't figure out how to get out. And I'll just, I'll go ask, can I assist? And if I see someone um, on a bike or walking and they look like they need some help, I'll ask, can I assist? And people do that to me too. So it, it is neighborly. It is about being a neighbor. I like the way you said that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a neighbor. Absolutely. And I think that, that what you're talking about is doing that in the present in ways that are meaningful and impactful for folks around us. I don't know if we in coming out of this or into this post-pandemic time frame, if we really uh, understand yet how deeply we've been impacted by the isolation and the separations that we've experienced in the last few years. Something as powerful as a smile, a greeting, offering your name, meeting a new person. Uh, these are ways of beginning to rebridge and rebuild community among people that we don't know. Never underestimate your ability to impact the course of major exploitative industries. Uh, we don't have to harvest all the fish. We don't have to cut down all the trees. There are ways that we can combat those efforts as well. 
and just remarking on, on the one point where the Christian takedown, uh, what I was referring to is uh, a shadow side of dominionism that I've been reading about. And this is an entirely different take on the idea of this being a stewardship or a caring for creation uh, invitation. A very decided move, and we'll name some names here on the part of organizations like the late Jerry Falwell's and continuing in this organization, uh, this idea of a Christian hegemony in the world, that dominionism is meant to mean Christians are called to take control. And I, I can't think of anything more dangerous, but um, and, and sponsored by people like Ted Cruz. I mean, there are political people and people in the, in the religious sphere that are propagating this idea that dominionism, as we're talking about it, doesn't go far enough. So we've got to be aware that a lot of different agendas and plans are in play. And uh, at the same time, be reaching out in grace and love to a world in need. Uh, thank you uh, both for those comments. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I actually want to go back to the word that, that Dan used about subdue. I think subdue is a really a trigger word. Uh, and when they talk about you know in trauma, there's certain things that can trigger you know this recollection of what. So for for native peoples for the people of Africa, the Middle East, who, of India, uh, who were dominated by Western imperialism and colonialism, the word subdue is a trigger. And I think if we look at the alternative language, which is to shepherd, which is to love, to care, as we're, as we're using today, uh, and then the very powerful word in Arabic, we say Arab, which some people translate as Lord, but Rabb is more of one who cultivates. And so this is why the idea of the garden. So God has a garden of cultivating us. And even when it comes to the self, to say I'm going to subdue myself, there's a, there's, a, there's a potential for violence as well. And so if the word of the Quran says the one who is successful is the one who grows himself. So growing includes pruning and trimming back, cutting back things, but also allowing to grow. And so I think we just really have to change the language um, to, to answer the question of how do we build, is, is this radical change of language starting within ourselves, within our families, uh, in our communities. Uh, and, uh, you know, I share the love. <laughs> so, So we're hoping people will come on now. <laughs> come up to mind and share their questions and thoughts. I'm I'm struck with this dominionism um, movement that's happening with Ted Cruz and all about how little they read their Bible um, and how many verses in the Christian scriptures and I think in the Jewish scriptures and it sounds like also in the Quran talk about Whoever wants to be first must be the servant of all. Whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever wants to be over other people has to minister to everybody, and they 
I, I remember in the 90s, there was some kind of green revolution in the evangelical movement where they talked about this for five minutes, about how they needed to be the servant of creation. Uh, but that's gone now. And I, I would love to see it come back. And I'm glad y'all are preaching this in your churches. Can anybody comment about how the culture is sort of flip-flops or bubbled around trying to find its identity as an environmental care, religion, faith, spiritual practice? Anyone sort of talk about that? Because it has been an interesting 30 years of politics and, you know, this is real. Oh, no, 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 we don't care about this. And, you know, like she was saying, the evangelicals uh, at one point were kind of excited about environmental care, and then it turned into a much larger, longer project. Well, it, it seems like the energy comes and goes, right? It waxes and wanes and bits, but the stakes are getting higher and higher. And Chris, you said something uh, at the uh, Not Under One Sky for IAC that uh, really struck me, and I, I won't give the full context, but the way you said it as a one-liner uh, really has gotten me thinking. But you said, that we must all learn what it means to be indigenous again. What what did you mean? Can you just open that up? Because that seems relevant to what we're talking about. Um, well, actually, a lot of what Kaya said, and um, there's a good uh, contextual root for that. Um, the All Creation Project interviewed a woman. This name I'm not gonna remember right now. It's been over a year. Uh, but she's a, a great leader. She works at the UN uh, as an indigenous rights leader. And I um, can't believe Janine just, I can't remember last name. Anyway, um, she said at one point in her, in her interview, basically, I'll, I'll use coarser language, she said, we don't need you, you know, white people come into the res. This is a Native American. We don't need you to come into the reservation to help us. We need you to become native to place. We need you to become native to where you are. We need you to become indigenous. And I had no idea what that meant. It just was like, what on earth does that mean? Now, in the time since then, um, maybe the reason I can't remember her name is, like Kaya was saying, you know, becoming native to where you are is about being in relationship with the other living creatures that are around you. It's pretty simple. It's not a difficult concept. Um, and so the easiest way to do that is literally to start talking to the other life that's around you, whether it's even seen or unseen. You know, the trees that you see when you drive to work or your commute, wherever you go, the, the animals in your house, the birds overhead. You don't need to be weird about it. It's just normal, it's natural. There's so much nonverbal communication that we share with the other forms of life. There's a few new people in here since we started, so I mentioned at the beginning, we're 50% plant DNA. We are, you know, or we have something like 98.9% uh, or 7% of the same DNA as a bonobo and a chimp. And we have just so much genetic and uh, physical intelligence in common with the other life on our planet that there's like a whole world of communication waiting for us. And so it's, it's literally about treating the other uh, organisms on the planet, no matter which type of organism, from microcosmic or microscopic to, you know, redwood, um, treating it like an individual, treating it like a person. Indigenous people, as we call them, talk about the other life as the other people, generally speaking. We're all people here. We're just different forms of people. Um, I should stop there for time. So, some of those things. Yeah, no, thanks for that context and, and helping me remember that. So, 
um, at the at the red bench that Venerable JG hosted at the Temple off 360 uh, Tuesday night, I believe. Um, at my table, we were talking about a similar theme as we are now, and at first, there was a younger person at our table who was overwhelmed and said, it's just gotten too political, I give up. And then another person at the table said, you know, for me, it all comes down to the gut, gut health, and that we need to eat uh, diverse, uh, a lot of diverse, you know, foods to, to cultivate uh, a heterogeneous, diverse, biodiverse gut for gut health. And that makes, we just started getting happy. We started talking about good soil and everybody was talking about their plants and how they compost. We, we left uh, the evening, uh, thanks to the holiness of that place in part, uh, with, with some concrete uh, ideas for doing the least that we can do for now. I don't know what, what the big macro answer is really at this point. Uh, Mike Adams, usually are provocative. Don't you have a question about something? Absolutely. Or a thought? Come on. Without your reputation. I'll be the provocateur. <laughs> this is rare, my guys. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> um, here, here's my provocative question. What do you do to guard yourself from becoming just as bigoted and prejudiced against those you think are bigoted and prejudiced? Using today's topic, how do you guard yourself from becoming just as dominating in your point of view as you think those are dominating in theirs. But can we also add the word, how do you garden yourself? So how do we uh, keep ourselves from otherizing, you know, in our effort to care and be the ones who care and are called to care out of our own sacred communities, how do we, I think that's right, Mike, how do we not otherwise or, or be better than or fall into that same self-righteous trap? Exactly. Well, I, I'm from San Francisco, California, and uh, I came of age just at a time when the hippie movement was at its apex. I don't know if all of you are old enough to know what a hippie was. <laughs> and if you're looking at my hair, I'm probably not the best example because they were supposed to be long-haired hippie freaks. But there was a time when I, you know, I kind of looked like that. But the word came out about counterculture, right? Countercultural. What does that really mean? Those of us who are activists out trying to make a better world see ourselves in this countercultural, don't we? But there's a difference between being countercultural and being a member of the opposition political party. I know I'm going to get in trouble. When have you ever shot a But here's the deal. Being countercultural is, is going against the assumption, the prevailing assumption of the day, and saying we can do better than that. 
We may not know what it is, we may not have all the answers right now, but we're going to ask ourselves different questions than the questions that are coming out in the newspaper every week and what's on the minds of most people. I mean, changing the world doesn't mean trying to convince the world to be something, you know, minorly different than it already is, to repaint the world, to reframe what's already happening. Changing the world means changing the world. How can we have a better world when we're not willing to look for new ways of doing things? I read a story in preparation for my new book, and it was about a Jane priest. And the Jane was uh, due to go have the coming out party, the ordination service, for lack of a better term. And they were, she lived a considerable amount of miles from the village where she needed to be. She had two roads which where she could travel. She chose one road that was actually longer because she knew the other road had more animals and more bugs and more things that she would have to step on on the way to being ordained. That means that she took into consideration the care for something or someone else above her own comfort before she even engaged in doing something. That's countercultural. That's counter, our culture doesn't think that way at all. I mean, even when we get ready to be an activist, we want to do things that make us feel good. We want to do our part and say, I, well, I'll read four books on how not to be um, a racist, and I'll do my part. And then when I get to work on Monday, I'll just do live as I always have lived, without caring. And I would say one other thing, and part of our ministry, part of my work, involves the disability community. And I've been at it 11 years. And we go every week, I'm in one of the facilities around Austin. My wife is on the board at the, uh, the State Center here for six years. And we've advocated for different, at different churches and tried to get people to be more sensitive to the needs of what are called the special needs community. And you know, there was only one time in that entire, um, in my entire time on the board, that we've gone to a clergy and said, well, have you considered how you could reconfigure your service, or how you could reconfigure your building, or have to the needs of the eight or nine people out of the 200 to the 10 that care? And I'll tell you the story. One time we were having a meeting in this uh, Episcopal church down on 27th Street, and one of the people showed up in a wheelchair that was too wide to get in the bathroom. So they went and found a guy named Marvin, and Marvin took him down to the student center, thinking there's another bathroom there. We'll try to find all, we'll go to each location and try to find a, a restroom to accommodate this person. Didn't find it, wasn't there. So the rector at the time found out about it. And within a year, the project started to widen 
the bathrooms, the existing bathrooms in this, uh, in this, I don't know how the building is. I guess I can ask them because the rector's sitting right here. However old it was. But that's the type of caring that when you start with the other person in mind, that's where you begin. It's not reactionary, it's proactive. How am I going to affect what, how are my actions going to affect the next person down the road? That's countercultural in our American what's in it for me culture, and I'm done. Thank you. I think uh, you inspired me to talk about, um, about gardening and um, I was assigned from Taiwan. To Hong Kong first and then to the States. And so, um, my experience, I have cultural shock when I first arrived in the States. Um, for one, English. You guys talk English very fast without knowing that. <laughs> but I try to be polite to smile back at you. <laughs> okay. So, um, in my temple, we have two communities. One is Chinese communities, and one is English communities. Brackets happen to be in that English communities. And as a person, as a Chinese, I, I was born in Taiwan. And um, the American culture, or the Western culture, is quite new to me. And while as a, a monastic, I have to teach the people here. For those Chinese who have been living in the States much, much longer than I have been, so it's quite a challenge. But um, I tell myself that if Buddhism can survive from India to China and then all the way to the States, there must be some uh, elements in Buddha's teaching that can adapt to the local people, to the contemporary times. And so uh, it's tried and error for me to see the similarities and differences between the Chinese community and the English communities. And so what you talked about, uh, the big word, what is a dominance? Dominionism. That's a very big vocabulary. <laughs> But anyway, that's something dominating something else, right? And in my community, I try to balance. Um, they have different, they use different languages, and languages itself, it, uh, it differentiates even the same idea. And so for me, every uh, Saturday is for the English community. Sunday is for Chinese community. And you can see my brain is going back and forth, very busy in trying to, to, to localize, to, uh, to see how people need to care for them, what they need. And their needs, the needs of the both com communities can be contradictory to one another. The English community want to talk, want to express, the Chinese community want to hide away from the spotlight, just like me. <laughs> and 
and then I have to I have to uh, cultivate myself that when I'm with the English community, I have to be more outspoken, and when I'm with my Chinese community, I have to be like them, <laughs> not to talk too much, and then try to be more conservative. Right? And so, uh, in uh, in cultivating the care for the communities, you need to practice no self. This is a very central uh, Buddhist idea um, that if you have a very big ego, it's very difficult to understand what others need. So we have the English word compassion or empathy, right? And um, if we uh, if we don't know what others needs, then we can we can be approaching to that person in a wrong way. And in Buddhism, we also talk about we are not uh, taking care of the living beings, the sentient beings. We are also taking care of the non-sentient beings. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you, you, if you uh, think deeper about the good, the wood here in this church is very beautiful <laughs> compared with that of my temple. And the beautiful wood, if you don't take care of them, then you will become uh, uh, old, used, and ugly very soon. So you have to maintain the what we call non-sanctioned beings. And non-sanctioned beings is as important as the sanctioned beings. If a person who can extend the love, the care, to not only the human beings, the pet animals, pet dogs and cats, but also to the cockpit, the microphone, the light, okay? and then that is that one person can be said that he is caring about the environment, everything. If not, then we are wasting uh, a lot. And one more thing, the shock is that in the country where we come from, we suffer from typhoon, we suffer from earthquakes. And so there are times, a lot of times, that we have an outage, power outage. We are short of water resource. And so um, when I see people here, Turning the tap water, and then you washing dishes, washing your hands, and whilst you're talking to someone else, and that's all of lengthen the time you do your washing, and that is very wasteful. Uh, I don't know how to tell them uh, <laughs> to do that. So in my temple, in, at the beginning we and we have the devotees to wash the dishes after meal. But nowadays we use disposable kitchenware um, plates because they waste really a lot of uh, resources. And uh, we nowadays we also ask them to bring their own uh, boards, their own uh, plates to uh, to to use for uh, during the meal time. And I hope that. Maybe um, my, my talking about taking care of 
non-sanctioned bids, the start can help uh, our, every one of us here to pay attention to what we use in our daily life. And if you know how to take care of that, I bet you will have more feeling about people. And then you can uh, emphasize about how others feel. Thank you. Thank you. Like I, I heard someone early on in my life say, don't become what you hate. And hate's a strong word, but these are really intensely polarized and angry times in a lot of respects. And the thing that I have to remember is I feel like I'm in, a, in the company of neighbors right now, very easily and comfortably in the company of neighbors. But I have to remember that Ted Cruz is a neighbor too. And I also have to recognize the fact that the very systems that are exploiting and destroying and threatening the viability of our survival, not Earth's survival, but our survival as a part of the Earth perspective, um, are systems that I've benefited from all my life. And that somewhere along the line, I won the cosmic lottery of being born a white male in 20th century America. And I don't walk around flogging myself for that because it's a part of who I am. But it also conveys a responsibility on me to, to act according to the social location and power that I have and to turn it to as positive a purpose as I can. Um, I was looking up some words. I didn't know, I thought we might have had a rabbi with us today, and I, I'm sketching on my Hebrew, but this dominion word that, uh, uh, that we're talking about in Hebrew is radah. I think I'm saying that correctly. And it talks about the relationship between a master and a slave, between a, a superintendent and workers, um, between the head of a household and members of the household. So there's a lot of different ways that dominion takes place. But it also uh, has the added component in the definition that that dominion is to be exercised in accordance with the one who grants the authority. So your dominion or my dominion or someone's dominion in a situation is intended to exemplify who is the grantor of that authority. And clearly in this Hebrew text, God is the one that's granting that authority. So that dominion is to be exercised in accordance with the character and nature and essence of the grantor of the authority. And another word that keeps coming up to me is kind of ironic. It's we've been talking about a radical movement brand. And the word radical, uh, the root Latin root radix means root. A radical is that root that takes off to find water, nutrition, whatever it is. And uh, our our challenge as radicals is to reroot. I think we have become torn up by the roots in some ways by moving from a more closely connected Earth-centric world to a paved environment in the, in the urban centers where 65% of us are now. So rerouting is an invitation to us in this whole perspective as well. Thanks so much, Brad. Y'all, we have, uh, uh, you know, five, ten minutes, so let, let's have another question out here, but also, uh, Kaya, do you have anything you'd like to follow up with? You, you gave that great opening statement, but after all that you've heard, I would say if you aren't thinking all the time, I could be wrong, and chances are you're being too self-righteous. 
the chances are you're being self-righteous. So gotcha. Thank you. I mean, if you want to avoid that, I would say hold on to that. I could be wrong, and then do the Maya Angelou thing of when you learn better, do better. So a lot of a lot of things coming into my mind, but this is an exercise in, in discipline. And uh, usually, you know, I'm by myself speaking, so this is like okay, it's okay. <laughs> but a lot of things are coming, coming, coming. So um, one of one of them is in the story of the Quran. Uh, there's King Solomon, uh, and the king of the Israelites, son of David, peace be upon both of them. Uh, and he is, you might see it as he's trying to subdue the Queen of Sheba and her kingdom. But it's very interesting in the story, she very cleverly articulates what she has done. When she understands the truth, because she was worshiping the sun instead of the god of the sun uh, in that story. So she says, I have surrendered in the word that she uses, Aslamtu, which is the same word for Islam, which is submission to God, not submission to any man or woman, but to God himself, uh, that all the rest of creation is also in submission to him. There's a verse of Quran that says the sun is bowing to him, the moon is bowing to him, the plants are bowing to him. So then many people are and many people <laughs> something else, so we're not going to get into that. But she says, I have surrendered, she didn't say I have surrendered to Solomon. She said, I have surrendered along with Solomon to Allah, which is the word in Arabic for God, the Lord of all of the worlds. And so I think that's the answer is the Prophet Muhammad Yusufanam said that God has inspired upon me and Tawala, be humble. Fala, and so then the, I'm assuming you're speak Arabic. There's one who was speaking Arabic earlier, but so, said, so that nobody will. Uh, uh, offend another or transgress against another and no one will feel superior to another. So we've inherited this whole system of empires, whether it was the Roman Empire, uh, and this is very meaningful that we're in this church, you know, when we talk about the Roman Empire and so on. But also the Muslims had their own empires. So it's not like we want to go a Roman Empire, Ottoman Empire, go back into the same cycle. Uh, we need to just all be together, humble, um, from our perspective, submitting only to God, uh, not to ourselves, not to our, you know, egotistical projections of thinking that we're speaking in the name of God, and it's something else. Um, and, and the last thing I want to mention uh, from a conversation with Chris, and also about uh, sentient and non-sentient beings, Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, he said, talk to the trees and talk. There was a mountain outside of the city, it's called Uhud. He said, the mountain of Uhud is a mountain that uh, we love, and it loves us. <laughs> and he used to address you know, the mountain and, and so on. So the idea of, of being in communion with everything around us, uh, but in submission to the one creator, uh, is, I think, the way forward. That's my personal opinion, is this... Uh, Humility, humbleness, uh, not trying to give back into empires and crazy stuff like that, because that's just going to bring more blood, you know, and uh, 
in the end, the rapist and the one who is raped, uh, they will suffer in their own ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're doing that to the earth also. So we need to be, be careful because we're doing violence to ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now, um, Dan, I'm going to ask you to close out the panel if you have any last thoughts. Uh, but before we do, any burning questions or thoughts that you can bring into the light of day? Hey, my name is Mike. Um, not a question, but a thought as to what I'm present to uh, as y'all are speaking and, and as we're here together as neighbors. Uh, Abraham Maslow said that in his sort of hierarchy of needs, that we cannot give unless we have our own needs met. And that what caring is about is not looking sort of inward to ourselves, but looking outward to the needs of others, asking what's needed. And so what I'm focused on is that A, I need to get out of my own sort of fear and depression and, and uh, sort of cynicism about the world and get back in the community because I've stopped doing that. And thank you all for bringing us all here today. Wow. It gives me goosebumps. Nice. Um, but I want to sort of close this out with one thought about a critique about Maslow's hierarchy that I read a while back. And that is that he sort of talks about the needs of the individual of shelter and food and belonging and self-esteem, but what he sort of left out was that you can't, we can't, none of us can achieve those things without community. Mm -hmm. That we rely upon the community to build our roof to become part of our group of belonging, to help us build our self-esteem. So I, I guess what I'm really present to is the community today. To, I'm just going to wrap this up by saying thank you again to Chris for, for creating this community and bringing me out. Um, but also just the need to sort of look out and not say, this is what I have to give, but say, what is it that you need? Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Can I add to that? Yes. Just for a second. Um, and that is, thank you, is that it takes um, a lot of courage um, to become the master over ourselves. A lot, you, a lot of hard work, which you have all done, in um, cultivating that in yourselves. And I think that just coming down to one little example where I uh, have a hard time is, for example, for years I have wanted to go into an animal shelter and give love to animals and help animals, but um, I'm scared to do it because I'm scared it'll make me too sad. I'm scared I will fall in love with an animal and I can't, you know, bring an animal home right now. 
I can you know, give you all these reasons that I just can't muster up the courage to do that. So then I go back into my own little comfort place and, uh, you know, that's a hard, it's, that's a challenge. And things aren't changing. And things aren't changing. Yeah, so I do what I can do. So maybe I, I don't have the stuff to be able to go into a shelter and witness that and take that home with me and become overwhelmed and depressed. Or how do I cultivate that courage? I'm using that as an example. Does that? Beautiful. Thank you. You've brought us up to me. I just wanted to share, so I was uh, always known as someone who would never have a, a pet, but especially not a dog. And I'm one of those many, many people who became a dog person in the pandemic. My dog has changed my life for, for the better. Um, but I just wanted to say that, you know, I keep picturing the beginning of the pandemic, which was full of such grief for me. I lost my job, I lost playing with my bands, my kids weren't in school, it was every lost so much going to church. And yet, I have this beautiful memory of, of laying in the grass on my yard when there was nothing else to do, and like two raccoons were like on a date. They were like just like walking down the street in my neighborhood, and everything was alive, and you could hear, and you could hear the earth in ways in my neighborhood, which is the neighborhood I grew up in. I feel really deeply about neighborhood and roots. Um, you could hear the earth in ways I had never heard it before. And I knew the animals in my neighborhood in ways I never had before. And everybody knows I do too much, and today is a perfect example. Too much is going on. But I'm carrying around with me this book in the hope that I get it by osmosis. It's called Rest is Resistance, a manifesto from the NAP ministry. Look up the NAP ministry if you don't know it. But I just wanted to say that this is a time where we have an opportunity. It's an opportunity in myself to ask myself, where can I do less? Where can I rest and listen and fortify my spirit in relationship to the earth? Because the earth was alive when we were doing less. It was thriving. Our animals were thriving. And so now we're at that moment after two and a half years where we're looking, our churches are looking at, well, what activities are we going to do again? And maybe what things didn't really serve us? And what things are we going to do in our businesses, in our corporate lives, those of us who work in the corporate world, and where are we going to, can we say no? So we're just, we're at a very special moment, I think, in our relationship to all things where we can ask ourselves how we might make more room for the earth to thrive. Amen. Thank you. Okay, Dave, you got any last thoughts? And then we'll, we'll close it up. Uh, I'm, I'm the only thing standing to doing great music, so I'll try to this <laughs> up. I just want to affirm what everyone has shared, both up here on this panel and in the congregation. This has been a really good conversation. And I'm encouraged by those that will follow after this. Countercultural. I'm really glad that that came up. Uh, one of the other things, just kind of bringing it full circle with the parable that I brought up before about the Samaritan that stopped to help. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a sermon on that parable that uh, always is, is in my mind when I think about it, where he posed the question. Um, where the priest and the Levite who passed by asked, if I, if I stop and help this person, 
what's going to happen to me? Because the road's dangerous. Whereas the Samaritan stopped and looked at him and said, if I don't stop and help this person, what will happen to him? And that kind of gets to the question that was asked earlier about how do we garden for ourselves in order to you know, foster a relationship with people that we differ with. It is to create a community like this, community events like this, whether it's something this big or a simple coffee invitation, where people that you differ with um, can be in a relationship with you. And you can, the way that you get that to happen is by asking the question, uh, if I don't do this, what will happen to them? And what I mean by that is, so often the people that we disagree with are coming from places of pain, where they are acting out on that pain and projecting it onto society in a way that we abhor. But if we avoid their pain, it will simply fester and get worse. And so, by asking that fundamental question, what will happen to them, we get together and have a conversation. Step two is in having these conversations with each other across our differences. We change the narrative away from the polarized theological questions that keep us divided in asking, what will happen to them, a uh, person that I differ with? What will happen to the person who uses a wheelchair uh, when they find a bathroom that isn't wide enough for the entryway for them to get into it? What will happen to the LGBTQ youth that is kicked out of their house because their parents were told by the preacher that their kids are going to go to hell if they don't do it? What will happen to that kid? And I could go on and on down the list, but if you ask the question of people that you disagree with, what will happen to them, the others that aren't in the headlines that divide us? Then you start having a constructive conversation that goes, huh, I haven't thought about it that way before. I'm glad we're having this conversation. So I'm encouraged, and I think that the more we ask, if I don't know, what will happen to them? Then that becomes, what will happen to us? And that's good. So thank you. Thank you, Dan. Perfect. Thanks for summing that up. Chris, we love you. Thanks for pulling all of us together. JG, I, I don't know if you can think of a short sutra that you can chant. Is that possible? Just to end us with a benediction? Sure. Is that 10 stars on the merits? Yeah. I can't do All right. Sorry, I'm <laughs> <laughs> <To> myself. <laughs> I have to be over you. Um, this is uh, chanting in Chinese and written by my master. Uh, it's, uh, it's about saying that we, uh, uh, we want to make vows to develop our compassion, our kindness, uh, and then also we want to share our joy